Thanks, Richard. Thanks for the warm welcome. Thanks for that introduction that puts me under huge pressure. But it's wonderful to be back with you. It has been a while. Uh, this is my first time with you in this venue. I've got to say, I like this venue. It's great. More space for dancing and moving in the front um, and, and really walking in the freedom that God's got for us. But more exciting for me than um, a new building is new faces. And it's so wonderful to see so many people that I don't know, uh, people being added, uh, numerical growth. You know, you, as, as a congregation, you planted a whole bunch of people out uh, elsewhere and sacrificed, and God has just continued to add, and it's wonderful to see that. Um, and it's wonderful to see, uh, even this morning, we, we have uh, child dedications, we have uh, God adding the youngest, we, uh, I see some, some more mature people in the congregation, and uh, it's just delightful to see some of the more mature people leading the way in worship, yeah? We're going to be at the front, we're going to be raising our hands, we're going to be dancing, we may not have the flexibility and the bounce we had in our 20s, uh, but we're going to give it everything we've got, so that's awesome to see, and uh, that should be a challenge to some of the younger ones, that when we worship, we, we worship with all that we have. And if all that we've got left is a little, that's beautiful. But if you've still got a lot left, give it all. Uh, but it's wonderful to be with you. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge now in Josh Jen is we are family, but it's like family we hardly ever see sometimes. We're 45 congregations now, I think. Uh, it's hard to keep up. Um, I'm based in Melbourne Strand. I don't even get into, into that congregation half the time. As I travel around, I travel to Brazil, I travel to many different congregations. And so I, I, I see friends sometimes like once every six months, once a year. You know, Mark and Tanya, we were, we were very close to at one point, and now we see you guys whenever I'm here, basically. It's, it's crazy. Um, but that's the price we pay for growth. And uh, the good news is if we sacrifice something of our friendships and relationships now, that's okay because we've got eternity to hang out together, Right? And we should, be, we should be living our lives with eternity in mind. And I love the fact that Jesus is building his church. And in Matthew 16, he promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's sometimes easy to look around the world at the moment and think the gates of hell are prevailing, right? <laughs> it, it, you just by observation, it looks like the world is getting darker. And I believe it is. What happens to the light as the night gets darker? The light needs to shine brighter. And we need to be uh, an ever-shining light into a world that's getting darker and darker. And the devil is going abroad and he's doing, but he will not ultimately prevail. And I think in some senses, as I look around the world, especially in the West, People are saying the church is dying because church attendance is, is getting smaller. And I said, no, the church isn't dying. It's just God sorting out who's really his and who isn't. I don't think there are any fewer Christians in the West than there were 10 years ago. I think it's just those who are truly followers of Jesus uh, are having to pay a price. And those who are just in it for the culture or convenience are realizing it's not worth the price anymore. And that's what's going to happen, I believe, as we move into the future we, we, we can't have a foot in each camp. We, we can't be half and half. We're going to have to be totally committed. And the only way we can remain 
committed to the Lord, on fire, healthy, um, growing in Him, is through the church. I see on Facebook people like to say, I'm a gospel individual or I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. And I'm going, you don't understand anything. Because if you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves and He died for the church. If, if, you, if Jesus is your Lord, then you're obedient to Him and, and you're you part of His plan and His purpose for the world. And Ephesians tells us that it's through the church that He desires to make His manifold wisdom known. If you know Jesus and you know yourself, if you've got any self-awareness, you know, and unless you're way more spiritual than I am, that there's no way you can make it on your own. Just like a coal taken out of the fire grows very cold very quickly. You put it back amongst the other coals and it heats up. We need the church, but we need healthy church. We need a church where when we say Jesus is the head of the church, we mean that in a very real practical way. Not, he's not just some figurehead. You know, you get charities and organizations and they have a patron. Like the Queen's just had a platinum jubilee. I don't know if you're into the Queen or not. Um, but she's like the patron of loads of charities and they say, oh, we, we have this patron. She doesn't do anything for them. She just lends a name to it. Jesus is not our patron in that he just lends his name to us to give us a degree of credibility. He's our leader. He's our king. He's our master. He's our ruler. He's our builder. And for us to have healthy church, we've got to let him build his church. And we've got to be careful how we build. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 3. You can turn there. People don't turn there anymore. You swipe there, right? Most of you. Swipe to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Doesn't sound the same. And I'm going to start from, from verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. Now, straight away, that's an incredible statement. Think about that for a second. We are co-laborers with God. We are, we are in a joint venture. We are partners. He's the senior partner, okay? But we are partners with God. We are co-laborers. And, and there's a word in the Bible that many of you, if you've been around church for, for long enough, you will have heard the word koinonia. Who's heard the word koinonia? Right, which is a Greek word, it's the Greek New Testament word that's often translated fellowship. But it speaks of more than just friendship. We're not called just to be friends. It, it's, called, it's, it's, a, it's more about partnership, co-laboring together, adjoining together. And the New Testament uses that word koinonia three different ways. It says that you and I have koinonia, we have fellowship, we are partners. But it also says, me and the Lord... I'm a partner with him. So there's a, there's a horizontal and a vertical aspect to it in my life that I have to partner self, myself with the Lord and with you. But it's also used another way where it's the way that churches relate to one another and churches partner together in koinonia for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. And Paul writes this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each take care how he builds on it. And we often use this scripture when we're, 
we're teaching church leaders and we're training church leaders how to build healthy church. And we say, be careful how you build your church. But this equally applies to you as an individual. Be careful how you build your life. Let each one, not let Richard, let each one take care how we build on a foundation that's been laid. For for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will become obvious. It will become, uh, it will be revealed for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Sorry to mention fire today. I hope everybody's houses and people and cats and things are safe. Horrendous pictures. Richard sent some to me last night. I was praying last night that uh, everything would be safe and everyone would be safe. But it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, it will receive a reward. If your life is built on the foundation of Jesus, you'll receive a reward. If this church is built on a foundation of Jesus, we receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Having that, we know what that smell is, right? Some of us will get into heaven with that very distinct smell. (laughs) We might get there, but our rewards and our inheritance and what we've done will have been burned up. And so it's essential that we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So it's important what we build on, and then Paul talks about what we build with. He says, if you build with gold, silver, precious jewels, or wood, hay, or straw. So what is the, is the foundation we build on? And as a church, I want, I want to talk primarily about us as a church, but I want you also, because you're, you're a clever bunch, you guys, I can see you're cleverer than the average congregation. <laughs> to also apply it to your personal lives, because what is the church if it's not the accumulation of all of us together? This, it is more than the sum of its parts, but... We are the parts that make it up. So when it comes to church, the only way to build a healthy church is on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we all go, yes, of course, obvious. And, and we all, most of us hopefully would just say, yes, that's correct. We've got that theology. But in practice, that's not how many churches are built. And churches can be built on good things, but those good things are not designed to be the foundation. So here we have a building. It's a decent building. It has a foundation. If it didn't have a solid foundation, we'd be seeing cracks everywhere. You know, we'd be a little bit worried about sitting under this roof. It's got windows. It's got doors. And windows and doors are important. But they're not the foundation. Pillars are important, but they're not the foundation. And so often churches are built where they put good things as the foundation. So let me give you an example. There are some churches that are built around, let's have really professional, high-quality worship. And so everything revolves around, we, we, 
you know, you've got to audition for the worship team. You've got, to, you've got to play with a certain level of skill. And you've got to look beautiful and attractive on stage. And we'll have a light show and smoke machine. Because that way, we'll attract people because they'll be attracted to this incredible worship. Is worship important in the church? Is it the foundation? No. And I, honestly, I would rather have half-skilled musicians with a passion for Jesus than highly skilled. <laughs> and I'm not saying yet, I love to worship this morning. I thought you guys did awesome. You really did. Um, and I love the songs. There was, but what I loved is there was a heart to try and connect with Jesus and connect the people to Jesus, not put on a performance. Some churches are built around being seeker-sensitive. Now, is it good to be welcoming to guests and visitors? Yeah, but not at the price of Jesus. If I'm going to water down the message to, to make you feel more comfortable, then I've got you as the foundation, not Jesus. And as much as some of you are really good-looking and talented and clever, you don't make a good foundation. Jesus does. Preaching the gospel is important. And preaching the word and some churches are built around, we're going to have really, really good preaching. And I'd rather have good preaching than bad preaching. But that's not the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. And by that, I, I was preaching this in Brazil, and, and a couple of uh, elders of a church came up to me, and they said, oh, so we've got to build uh, the, the church on a foundation of Jesus. Yeah, they said, do you mean we have to take all our, all our people through a, a course on Christology? No, I'm not saying you build on a foundation of a theology about Jesus. You build on the person of Jesus. You build on a relationship with Jesus. You build on submission to Jesus, that he's truly the Lord and Savior, that he's truly in control, that we hear him, we follow him. So we don't build with systems. We don't build with traditions. Scripture tells us that the traditions of man nullify the word of God. We don't build on, and I was chatting to some potential lead elders yesterday, that the way that the Christian world works often is the way that the business world works. One guy plants a church, it grows big, he writes a book about it, and then goes on a world tour telling everybody how to build, and they copy his methods. And that's not how we build. And some methods, you might increase numbers, you might build something, but will it, be, will it survive the test by fire? So even the way Josh Jem was planted, if somebody says, I'm going to do exactly what Andrew Selly did, they will crash and burn because things were crazy. And we made every mistake in the book. Can I just tell you how, how, how crazy Josh Jem was? In the, you think it's crazy now. Our very first worship leader had to be disciplined out of the church because he tried to seduce one of the young boys in the church and refused to repent. Our first administrator stole money from the church. Our first proper kids' church worker turned out to be a practicing witch. We didn't, we didn't choose it. This is what happened to her. It's like, I, mean, I can tell you stories about the early days where you, you think, I'm not, not going to that, back to that place. These guys are insane. We were young, we were stupid, but we were full of zeal. And there was a desire to follow Jesus, and we did. And so you try and if you try and imitate the methods, you'll crash and burn. If you imitate the faith and the obedience, 
That's the key. So we don't build with systems. We build on a foundation of Jesus. Then that's what we build on. And then what do we build with? And Paul says, and there's different ways of interpreting this. He says, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, just for for the sake of today, and you can interpret it differently, but just for the sake of today, I want to look at that as two categories. Gold, silver, precious stones. They look pretty. They look impressive. But generally, they're not very good building materials. If you want to build a supporting column, concrete may be cheaper and uglier than gold and silver. But you don't want to make a supporting column out of gold and silver, am I right? And we don't want to build a church that looks impressive on the outside and has no substance. But neither do we want to build with wood, hay, and straw, which is cheap and easy to work with. When we built our um, building in Sunningdale, we had very little money, so a lot of sweat equity went into that, and blood, sweat, literal blood, sweat, and tears uh, in the foundations of that building. And the concrete uh, floor of that whole building, that concrete was mixed, poured, transported, and spread by us. And to be honest, concrete is horrible to work with. It's heavy, it's messy. You know, wood, hay, and straw are a lot easier to work with. They're easier to carry, <laughs> but they don't do the job. And so we've got to find the right, to, the right materials for the right places at the right time. So, for example, and, and I said, what are the materials are we building with? And Paul answers the question. We are the temple. We are being built together. So the material we're using is us. We are the living stones. And so we've got to, we've got to listen to Jesus as the foundation and then say, where do I fit to build the church? What is my role? What is my place? And for example, I would say deacons are like pillars in the church. You don't always go into a building and notice the pillars. But without the pillars, that whole thing's going to collapse. And we have deacons who give themselves and serve hard, often unnoticed. But they're qualified by character. They're not wood, hay, and straw. And so this is the church that Jesus is building, and he's building it on a foundation of himself. And we've got to be careful that we build on him, and then we've got to be careful how we build from that point. But then it's interesting that as much as Paul saying he's a master builder says that we build on a foundation of Jesus and there's no other foundation, he then says something which sounds like an apparent contradiction. He says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So now this is a slight different picture and it's not a contradiction, it's just a different angle, it's a different way of looking at the same picture. And he's saying here that Jesus is the cornerstone and the cornerstone is the first stone that's put in place And then the position of every stone thereafter is determined by the cornerstone. 
It says once Jesus is in place, and that's got to be in place first. Once Jesus is in place, then the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. Now, there's been a lot of debate and argument over what is meant by this, and many people interpret this to say, well, the apostles and the prophets is the New and the Old Testament. And if you hold to that, I I can't say that that's wrong. I think it's incomplete um, because I believe that around Jesus, he gathers to himself men that he uses to partner with to help him build the church. And he gathers together men and women that he recognizes and gifts them and equips them to be co-laborers with him to then be a foundation from which they can then know where all the other living stones apply. And apostles still exist today to fulfill that function. And some people say, no, no, apostles can't exist today. They died out in the first, te- first century um, and I just want to unpack that a little bit because this is something we've got to get because we, as Josh Jen, are an apostolic household. We, as Josh Jen, are part of an apostolic movement of churches. And if we don't understand that there's a modern-day role and purpose for an apostle, then those statements are meaningless. But we, if we understand that apostles are part of the, the fabric and, and, and the essential nature of healthy church, then we can position, position ourselves rightly accordingly. So in Acts 2.42, for example, and it was alluded to earlier, it says of the early church that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. And so they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And again, some people say that's scripture, but when that was written, there was no New Testament scripture. Okay, there was the apostles, and people say, oh, well, that's the original 12, or the original 11 plus 1. And people argue that apostles can't exist today because in, uh, in the beginning of Acts, um, the 11 remaining apostles, remember Judas has gone away and hanged himself, and they say, we need to find a replacement for Judas. And so we need to find somebody who's walked with Jesus and been an eyewitness to everything he's done. And, that's, and so that's how they chose the replacement for Judas. Notice that was the replacement for Judas. That wasn't the qualification for all apostles of all time, for all time. Now, what I would say is there is a clear distinction between those original 12 that walked with Jesus and apostles that came later. And just to use fancy church jargon that we use sometimes, often what we'll talk about is pre-ascension apostles and post-ascension apostles. In other words, those guys that were chosen as apostles before Jesus ascended back to heaven, and those after. And it's quite clear in Scripture that there were apostles other than those 12. Let me unpack that just to convince you if you're not sure. So we see in the New Testament, we see... uh, Barnabas is referred to as an apostle. Paul's referred to as an apostle. Apollos, Timothy, and Silvanus, and many, many more are referred to as apostles. In Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, sorry, I only only said verse 12, but in in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, um, let's have a look at that. It says, 
In fact, from verse 8, you don't have to put that one up. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high and led a host, this is talking about Jesus at his death and resurrection and ascension, right? When he ascended, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. So this must be a whole bunch of different guys. And he says, and he gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until. So he says, he's given those gifts until. So once this next part of this verse is fulfilled, then we don't need apostles anymore. Okay? Because they're given until. So, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So he says apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are needed until we all reach fullness of knowledge and full maturity and full unity. So if you believe that we've reached full unity, full maturity, and full knowledge, then we don't need apostles anymore. If, however, you look around and you think, maybe we're not quite fully unified. Maybe we've still got a little bit of maturing to do. Maybe I don't know everything I need to know right now. Then thank God that he's given us those gifts to help us attain those things. Likewise, Paul, when he's talking about his own apostolic call, in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us this, that after Jesus died and he rose again, he says, for I delivered to you as, as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared... So after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So he says he appeared to Peter, the 12, 500 brothers, James, all the apostles, and me. And so already, by the time Paul is writing Corinthians, we have to understand that as well as the original 12, there were other people regarded as apostles. Now, apostles today don't write Scripture. Apostles today build on the foundation of the original apostles. But there are apostles, there are apostles today. And the word apostle can be used in different senses. It can be used in a technical sense or in a general sense. Just like the word deacon. The word deacon means servant. And in one, who's a servant of God? Right. Any, anybody who's saved is a servant of God. So you are a deacon. But then there's the office of deacon. Who here is a deacon? Right. Likewise, there are prophets. Who can prophesy? 
I wish you would all prophesy. Eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. In Acts 2, this is what Joel said, that in the last days, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh, and they'll prophesy. So who can prophesy? Yeah. But who's a prophet? Likewise, who's, who's apostolic? Who's an apostle? It's different. See, apostle means a sent one. And Jesus has given us all a mandate, go into the world and make disciples. So he's sending you into the world. In a sense, in a general sense, we're all apostles with a small a. But the office of apostle is something different. And that's, that's a gift that God has given to the church to help the church grow into hell. Now, not all apostles have the same gifting. Even we see that in Scripture. Paul calls himself a master builder, and he went and planted many, many churches. How many ch churches did the apostle John plant? None that we know of. He stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. Then he ended up in Ephesus. He got exiled. He wrote a couple of books of the Bible. Then he ended up in Ephesus and died there as an old man. And apparently he wasn't even much of a preacher because they would carry him into church because he was so old and frail he couldn't walk. But he was the last living person that, that had walked with Jesus. So you can imagine everybody's like, tell us, John. Tell us some stuff. Talk to us. And, and history tells us all he would say is, dear children, love one another. That was the sum total of his preaching. <laughs> That's profound. And so we had different apostles. And even today, there are apostles that carry different kinds of gifts. Some, some more gifted to plant, some gifted to, to work on that, some, some to bring health. But if we don't have, and if we don't recognize, and if we don't connect with apostles, then there is something lacking in the household. There's something lacking in the foundation. In the New Testament, we don't see autonomous, independent churches anywhere. We see local churches, but every local church is joined in partnership to another church or to other churches. And what is it that joins them together? A conference? A minister's fraternal? A subscription service? A structure or a membership? No, it's apostolic gifts that join them together in relationship, in commitment, in surrender to the Lord Jesus. And Paul is full of language like, come partner with me. I want all the churches to have equality. He, he goes into one church and he says, you've got finances. They're starving. Come. I want to take from you to give to them. He says to the church in Romans, he says, how I long to come to visit you to add what is lacking so that we might be mutually encouraged. He sends Timothy to, to a place to ordain elders because they don't have elders. He sends another representative to, he goes himself to correct and encourage and to partner with local eldership teams. And here's the beauty of have-led congregations. Richard leads co a, a, a congregation how, how much of a privilege is it that there's people who will come partner with us 
Tell us when we're making stupid mistakes that are going to kill our congregations. Tell us when we're going down roads that are unhealthy and unhelpful and theological cul-de-sacs. It's not about control, it's about partnership. And the beauty is we have apostolic gifts that partner with us to help bring us into health. And so within Josh Jen, we have apostolic gifts. And then outside of Josh Jen, but within this field called 412, we have apostolic partners that will help us. And Josh Jen is as healthy as it is, not just because of Andrew and the eldership team, but because of outside apostolic gifts that come in and give us perspective from the outside. A few years ago, there were, there were certain accusations against Andrew and his, his character and his leadership style. And in most churches, the leader would just say, I don't care. I'm, I'm the leader. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Be quiet. Right? We understand that's not the heart of Jesus. We're built on a foundation of Jesus, not a foundation of Andrew Selly. And so there are accusations by more than one person. She said, I've got to represent Jesus, and, and I don't see it. I think they're wrong, but who knows? And so he phoned people from apostolic gifts from other churches and said, will you come in and audit us as a church? Will you audit me, my character, my life, my leadership? Will you meet with these disgruntled people who are making accusation, accusations? Will you meet with my elders? Will you meet with, them, with my people? And they did for three months. He said, and if you find these accusations to be true, I'll step down and hand over the church. Because I don't want to hurt God's people. I don't want to hurt God's church. And they came back and they said, no, th these guys are wrong. They're offended. They're miffed. They're whatever. He said, but Andrew, there is one thing in your character that isn't quite reflecting Jesus. Can we bring correction? And he submitted himself to that. Isn't it wonderful to be part of a household where you know your leaders are also accountable and in submission. Where the characters are being tested. Where they themselves are not the foundation, but Jesus is. Where we know that we don't lead the church, we don't own the church. That as people, you don't belong to Richard. And as people, you don't belong to Andrew. As people, you belong to Jesus. And he's the great shepherd and we're the under-shepherds. And we need all the help we can get. And Jesus, knowing how stupid we are and how we all have our own um, character bents, our own theologies, our own tendencies, he said, I'm going to give you help. And I'm going to put you within a field. And field is, is a term that um, Paul uses. He talks about uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, from the, uh, around verse 13. He's talking to, to, to a church. He's talking to, to people who love Jesus. And he's, he's um, do, we, do we have that? If not, I'll just read it. He says, we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us. To reach even to you. And the word he uses there is field. He says, there is an area of responsibility God has given us. And here's one of the things that we need to understand is responsibility and authority are two sides of the same coin. So I was having a discussion with somebody recently and they said, 
what do you say when people ask you to recommend authors? I say, I've stopped recommending authors. I'd rather say, what do you want to know more about? And I'll recommend a book. Because <laughs> an author can be great in one area and terrible in another. But even if you've got, even whoever your theological hero is, and I've got some, I won't tell you they are, but I've got some, some theological heroes, some people whose, whose stuff I love reading. But the deal is, they're not responsible for me. So I can listen to them, I can read them, but they're not the people who stand before God and give an account for my life. And we live in a generation, and, and COVID just exacerbated it, that we all think we can just, let's go online and listen to good preaches that we enjoy. Those people aren't responsible for you. So they sh their words should not carry the authority that the local elders do. Not in a cultic, you can only listen to us way, but in a family way that I've got kids, they can go and stay in friends' houses, right? And when they're in a friend's house, be respectful of their rules and whatever. But when they come home and say, but so-and-so's dad lets them do X, I said, I don't care what so-and-so's dad lets them do. He's going to stand before God for them. I'm going to stand before God for you, and I want you to listen to my voice. If you think I'm wrong, go and get somebody to sort me out, but listen to my voice. I, I carry authority over you as my children because I'm responsible for you. And the guy with the latest bestseller or the YouTube channel or the podcast is not responsible for you. And Paul is talking, he says, this is my field. This is my area of responsibility. I carry authority within this field because I'm responsible. And we have apostolic gifts who carry the weight of responsibility for certain congregations that have joined together and said, we want to be part of this field. And those churches are in Brazil and the UK and Holland and Switzerland and Australia and Indonesia and Russia and Zimbabwe and Zambia and many other nations, hundreds of churches that are partnering together, held together by these apostolic gifts. They're there to help us build according to God's blueprint, helping us to build in such a way that our work will not be burned up, helping us to build healthy churches so that when you come into us, you're healthy. And sometimes we can talk about the apostolic and apostolic gifts and as, as people sit, sitting there in a, in a black plastic chair on a Sunday morning, we can go, that's great for Richard because he's an elder and he, he needs sorting out regularly. <laughs> he needs regular correction and encouragement. <laughs> but what difference does it make to my life? And that's what I want to unpack briefly now. Because apostles are given not just to work with Richard, not just to work with the elders, and not just to come in and be the superstars. Our movement of churches, our partnership of churches is called 412. Why is it called 412 and not 411? Because <laughs> Ephesians 411 says, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But that's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So I've been recognized, some people would describe me as 
a five-fold teacher. I, like many of us can teach, but then there's just like there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, I'm less than the list. But my job is not to do all the teaching. My job is to equip people to rise up in their gifting. Whether your gifting is teaching, uh, the prophetic, serving, administration, whatever it is, my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. My job is not to have the spotlight and take the attention. My job is to be the lowest and to serve. And so being part of an apostolic prophetic household, being part of an apostolic prophetic uh, partnership of churches is about you. So who is 412? People say, well, Andrew's 412 and um, Brad Ferrain is 412 and Jonathan's done. No, you're 412. You are the partnership. And what it requires is a two-way commitment, a two-way devotion. You know, Paul's language to churches is incredible, and it's so countercultural these days. Because we like those scriptures, you know, there's certain scriptures that say things like, uh, don't call any man teacher. Or you will, ha- you know, in those days you will need no man to teach you. You know, you have the Holy Spirit. And we're, yeah, well, I can, and yet there's other scriptures about submission, uh, devotion to apostles' teaching, all of these things. And it's interesting, Paul talks like this. It's incredible. We don't have to turn there, but I'll mention the scriptures. Um, I want to get the right scriptures. Um, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5, and in Galatians 4, 14, he's talking about how the people gave themselves to him. He said, you gave you first, yourselves first to the Lord and then to us. He says, you received us as though we were God himself. That almost sounds blasphemous, right? He says, and I know that when I came to you, I had a physical ailment, and it seemed like something wrong with his eyes. And he says, I know that you would have plucked out your own eyes if you could and have given them to me. Wow. Okay, that was Paul. Maybe he had an advantage over most of us. But that's how he was received by some. By others, he was received with contempt. And he had to defend his apostolic uh, mandate and his apostolic authority, even to churches that he'd planted. But how he was received often determined the health of the people that were doing the receiving. In Corinthians, he says, if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. And so there's a picture that we need to devote ourselves, not because these men are special, but because the gifts from Jesus. Why must I receive this gift? Well, on Christmas Day, if I give you a nice package, nice big box with a bow on it, and I'm giving it to you, why must I take this? Why do I have to have this? You'd be crazy, right? You go, thank you. A present, that's awesome. If you know me, you might be a little bit suspicious and think it's a practical joke, but... You understand what I'm saying? So there needs to be a giving of our hearts to these things, a devotion to where they're taking us, a, a, a submission to authority and leadership, which is a kingdom value, because these are men, and this isn't compelled in Revelation 2, it says, you tested those 
who claimed to be apostles but weren't. And so, so as a church, we first test, is this guy guy a character? Is he following Jesus? Because Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ, not just follow me. Follow me. And so there is a, once you recognize that gift and that grace and that character, then we give ourselves to it. Just as those men pour out their lives, and Paul poured out his life, and he said, I could have claimed things from you. I could have demanded money, but I didn't. I worked hard amongst you. I gave myself. And these are gifts that give themselves for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of you. So what does that mean practically? It means that we're a partnership of churches, so you are in partnership with people around the world. You've got family around the world. You've got co-laborers around the world. And they are devoting, they are devoted to you, and you need to be devoted to them. So how can we be devoted to this partnership of churches? Well, in three realms, with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. With, what does it mean being devoted to this thing with our time? Well, there was an announcement this morning about the 412 conference, and I hate the word conference. Because conference gives us the idea we go and sit in uncomfortable chairs and listen to a bunch of experts on some subject, right? That's not what the 412 conference is about. The 412 conference is about coming together, receiving from the Lord Jesus, having apostolic input about meeting people from around the world, hosting people from other churches, forming relationships, and giving ourselves in such a way that we build the church. I can get pretty much guarantee if the Apostle Paul was alive today and I said, he's coming next week, you'd make sure you were there. And I'm not saying these guys are the Apostle Paul, but there needs to be a devotion to apostolic input because it's a key to your life, to you reaching unity, maturity, and the fullness of knowledge of Jesus, right? It will, this church will be thrust forward massively if as many of you as possible are at that time. If 10 of you are there, those 10 of you are going to come back different, and the rest of you are going to be like an anchor. <laughs> so I know it's not going to be possible, but I would move heaven and earth to be there. So that's one way in, with our time. Another is um, if, if Richard says, hey, we've got Andrew coming on Sunday or Wednesday or Tuesday, make that a priority in your life. Devote yourself to be there. It means be committed to getting out of this place and visiting other places. It might be another Just Gen congregation. If you're a community leader, think, you know, I want to speak to Richard and say, Richard, one Sunday, can we take our community and go and visit Gordon's Bay or Meltbus or Sunningdale? And be a blessing, and we'll just go and we'll, we'll set up the hall for them, and we'll do their kids' church, and we'll whatever. We'll go and serve. It may mean going overseas, coming with me to Brazil. Who's been with me to Brazil? Best outreaches there are. There's lots of outreaches to many churches around the world. Brazil's the best. And here's the thing when you come to Brazil, you are an incredible blessing to the churches there. And there's churches there that are in so desperate need of encouragement. Our, our average saints, honestly, know more about healthy church than a lot of the elders I'm dealing with there. And you can help change the world. 
But the other thing that happens, and Tanya found this, she came with me to Brazil, and she was really nervous, and you know, she said, well, I've got a testimony to share, but I don't know if I should share it, and I'm a bit nervous. And she came, and she made a massive difference to a number of people there who she ministered to, but she came back different. She came back having grown in the Lord. She came back having grown in her faith. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow in your maturity, come with us when we go to the nations. And I've often asked people to come to Brazil, and the most common answer I get when I ask people is, I don't have the money. And I say, since when has that been a problem? If we can trust God, God can provide. And I've got countless, countless stories of God providing. So get your passports ready. Get your passports ready. You know, we went to the Isle of Man when we first started partnering with the Isle of Man about 11 years ago. And at the time, Jonathan, who was leading that church, had basically said to his guys, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to have any kind of prophecy or speaking in tongues in our churches. We're not going to have any of that rubbish. That's... Then they came across us and they said, we, we want what you've got. And so their leaders came and their leaders fell in love with, with you guys, actually. And they said, but how do we expose our people to this? Because they can't all come. So we said, well, we'll do a conference on the Isle of Man. And we took about 70 guys across to the Isle of Man for a conference. One of them, Auntie Peggy. I think at the time she was 88 years old. At 88 years old, she goes, and she's, she's not going to preach. She's not, she's not going to, but she's there. And she's just speaking to people and encouraging people. She's, she's sharing her life story. And then in worship, because they were like all this in worship. And in the one session in worship, we, we really want to break up on life and exuberance and, and passion. And so some of our young guys get up on the stage and start stage diving. And Auntie Peggy says, I'm going to do it as well. <laughs> Seriously, at 88 years old, she climbs up on the stage. And we're a little bit nervous. <laughs> so we kind of gently kind of make, make sure the fall isn't too great. But she stage dived. Do you know what it did in that church? That act changed that entire church. Because suddenly you had a whole congregation of people going, What's my excuse? Inspired. Auntie Peggy changed so many lives. When she passed away a couple of years ago, we had a memorial service. And so many people connected over Zoom from around the world to be a part of that because Peggy had touched lives around the world. I've taken teenagers and kids that have changed the world. Come with us. Give us your time. I promise you, two weeks with me in Brazil has more excitement, more joy, will do more for you than two weeks lay on a beach somewhere. Seriously. So give us your, give us your talents. You've got a gift. You can teach, you can preach, you can encourage, you can prophesy, you can pray, you can play guitar. Give us your talents and give us your treasures. Well, he's going to talk about money now. Yes, I am. 
Because we say God doesn't need your money, but he does. He needs your heart more than anything. But to reach the world takes a lot of resources. And the way we do things, we're not... I, I travel a lot. And the way we do it, I don't go and stay in hotels and get limousines. and I stay in people's houses. One, because it's cheaper. And two, because if I stay in a hotel, I don't get to know people. When I stay in somebody's house, they become family. But it, it takes resources. And there's churches that need resources. We get calls every week from people. I have a friend who, who called me recently uh, from Uganda, where they'd had lockdown, like total lockdown where they weren't allowed out of the homes. People literally had no money, no food. People were starving in the homes. And he phoned me, he said, we're desperate. Can you help? And I went to the 412 guys, and there was no finances available for that through 412 because there's hundreds of churches around the world in COVID desperately needing help. So into the kingdom. What are we building with? And what are we investing into? And somebody, you know, we, we, I don't know about you, Richard. Do you get a bit uncomfortable talking to people about money and telling them to give? You know what I realized a, a while ago? And I won't name names, but there's certain preachers who are a bit over the top and manipulative and kind of going to heresy about asking you for your money, right? You go, you go to hear them preach, and it's, they do about an hour-long thing about giving you money, and if, if you give this amount, God will give you more. And it's manipulation, it's unbiblical. But you know what? They raise a lot of money. And you know what that told me? Not to do what they did. God spoke to me like this. He said, there is a willingness and a desire in the people to give to the kingdom. And if you don't tell people where to put it, they'll put it where somebody else tells them. And they'll be investing in somebody's private jet and mansion and all of that. Or they'll be investing in the nations. And I don't want to be shy about saying, God, God, give me the courage to ask people for money for the nations, not for me, not for my ministry. I don't get a pay rise. And when I go to the nations, we ask those churches to give to us. And when I get offerings, I got an offering of about 10,000 rand from one church. I don't keep that. I put that back into the, into the cost of, of, of ministering to those churches. So what you give doesn't affect me at all, but it affects the nations. It affects the kingdom. And it's an investment in eternity. And around the world, people are doing that for you. There's, there's people around the world in, investing their times, their talents, their treasures, their prayers for us and for you. And we want this to be a true partnership. And there isn't a person sat here who knows Jesus who isn't able to contribute and be a contributing partner to this apostolic partnership of churches that is doing so much to change the way the world sees church, that is doing so much build the kingdom of God, that is doing so much to see healthy churches planted and established in the nations and doing so much to see so many people saved, delivered, discipled. 
That's what it means to be part of an apostolic prophetic household. There are so many benefits to me. And in gratitude, I want to take what I've been given and sow it back into what God is doing. I hope that makes sense. That's the beauty of, of this thing. And to go right back to the beginning, I want to read again the words of Paul, having said what I've said. Because this is about where do I invest my life? Where do I invest my time? Where do I invest my finances? For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let's build our lives. Let's give ourselves. Let's be a people who devote ourselves to the apostolic, to what God is doing, to his kingdom, to the nations, to his church. Because it's through his church that his manifest wisdom will be known to the powers, to the principalities of this dark age. And as the world gets darker, we will shine brighter. And we will be part with him of an inheritance in the nations. Ask of me, he said, and I will give the nations as inheritance for you. You might think you're small and insignificant, and in some ways you are. The six billion people on this planet, what can I do? Alone, not a lot. But in Christ and with you, we can change the world. And we can store up for ourselves an eternal inheritance of great value. Join with us, partner with us, and see yourselves as a key part of this partnership called 412. Amen?